Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. My first year of being the rabbi at the synagogue, I sat on this very bima. And I had the incredible fortune of engaging in dialogue in front of an audience with Alan Dershowitz. Now, Dershowitz has been a pioneer of the Jewish people in this era. He has spoken out in times when others have been silent. He has been courageous. And he's been a leader. And he's a brilliant jurist. Alan Dershowitz made a line that I once witnessed in a debate that he had with Alan Keyes, and he used it again at this forum. And I said to him afterwards, why do you always return to this line? And he said, because I think it's one of the most quintessential American values we have, and I would argue it's also one of the most quintessential Jewish values that we have. And here's the line in which he quotes Voltaire. The line is, I despise most of your views. I don't agree with any of your core values. I don't agree with your arguments and how you form it. But I'll fight for my dying day for your right to make it. That was a line he quoted when he debated Alan Keyes, a very conservative politician and radio host and spokesperson. He was saying it here when talking about different factors in the Jewish world a little over five years ago that we're all conflating together who might have been voices of dissent. And it was that phrase that Dershowitz said is quintessentially American and quintessentially Jewish. The phrase boils down to the very notion that while I might disagree, while I might not like what you say, while I might be passionately opposed to it, I still believe in your right to say it. And once we deny someone's right to say it, are we still American? Are we still Jewish? Are we still tied to our core values? This has been a fertile few weeks for rabbis to find topics in which to talk about for sure. And there are a couple that I would like to bring to your attention and tie them together to this teaching that has been ringing in my mind for the last five years since I had that conversation with Alan Dershowitz about what it is that is a core Jewish value and a core American value how in some arenas I have begun to see that value erode and how challenging that has been. And I'm going to give you three examples that have happened in our world. Example number one happened within hours of the war Operation Pillar of Defense. Today, many rabbis have an expanded bima, and they speak their minds, their sermons, their thoughts and beliefs in the worlds of Twitter, Facebook, and blogs. And they share their thoughts with their congregation through emails. They don't only wait for Shabbat services like they did a generation ago. One such rabbi, a classmate of mine, a colleague, someone who I respect immensely, who is brilliant, who is constantly in the leading five of the most impressive rabbis in our country, in our world, as change agents, she is listed by Newsweek and by Wall Street Journal repeatedly. Her name is Rabbi Sharon Brous. She wrote an email to her congregation 
when this war broke out, saying that she prayed for both sides and for what she hoped would be very little bloodshed between the two. And she worried for the innocent civilians in Israel and the countless innocent civilians that would have blood drawn from Gaza. Now I'm obviously paraphrasing, not a direct quote. This evoked a quick and harsh condemnation from another rabbi who is consistently in that list, who is consistently an agent of change, who has spoken at this synagogue, who is a dear friend of mine, who I listen to and read about and learn from regularly, Rabbi Danny Gordas. And Rabbi Gordas responded to Rabbi Brous, who was his student, by saying, have we lost the age of Jewish particularism? Have we lost a time where Jews can be stronger, better, and that we should worry about the Jew more than we worry about the other? He made a very compelling argument, one that frankly won me over just a little bit. But what happened as a result of these two different views, and Rabbi Brous's response to him, which all played out in the newest Israeli paper called The Times of Israel, was a divide, a dichotomization, a wedge of two camps that existed in the wake of this conflict in Israel. You were either in the Gordas camp or you were in the Brown's camp. You either believed that we should have a liberal bend or a conservative bend. You either believed that one was right and inherently by one being right that the other had to be wrong. And we saw that divide play out in the fascinating workshop that we have going on at the synagogue called Engaging Israel, an 18-week curriculum built by the Hartman Institute, all on topics of Israel, where this conversation was brought before 64 students who come every week to study topics of Israel. And you saw the divide in that classroom. I see students in the classroom nodding their heads. Of those who understood where Brass was, and those who understood where Gordas was. But the problem was, there was very little level of overlap. Very little area where the two played together. Let me give you two more examples. One from a similar situation related to Israel, and one that has nothing to do with the Jewish world, at least not on face value. On November 29, 1947, the United Nations, 65 years ago, made a vote to partition a strip of land in the Middle East between what was under British mandate to become two countries, one called Palestine, which never existed before then, and one called Israel, which hadn't existed for over 2,500 years. The Israeli delegation embraced that partition vote. The Arab League rejected it. Sixty-five years later, to the day, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of Fatah and the Palestinian Authority, stood in the steps of the United Nations just hours, days after missiles had flown over from Gaza and sought a unique status called UN Observer State Status, non-member observer state. Basically, the only other entity that has this is the Vatican. You can't vote. It's like being an ex-officio, but you can go to certain committees that are overseen by the UN, in particular the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And one of Israel's biggest worries is that this availability by the PA will be leveraged against Israel in international criminal courts. And for those of you who don't know, you don't have the best track record when it comes to issues of favoring Israel, supporting the Jewish state. We have been laden with anti-Semitism, which is why we have such concern. 
I will tell you, and this is a conversation for coming to the class at Torah Institute, perhaps for Kiddush, that this vote was actually supposed to happen on the 64th anniversary, or even before, meaning last September. And for some reason or another, Mahmoud Abbas got overzealous. He got overeager. And instead of getting observer state status, he went for the whole enchilada. He wanted to have the vote on becoming a full member of the state. And he was rejected outright. The Americans said we would veto it at the Security Council. They didn't even need to do that. The Security Council didn't even have a simple majority because the Palestinians were wildly unprepared for full member statehood. So they had to come back a whole year later to gain observer state status. And that happened just a few days ago. And in doing so, what ends up happening is that some people, writers, professors, philosophers, politicians, believe that this is a devastating move to Israel, devastating move for future talks, devastating move for the prospects of peace. Others believe that there's actually good in this. Zionists believe it. Because inherently in doing so, there's recognition of a second state, that of Israel. There are recognition of borders, though we don't like those borders, many of us. There is a recognition of borders, and it defines some of the critical issues that have been obstacles to peace so far within Israel. Personally, and this is for what we can talk about at Kiddush, I was in favor of this vote, not wildly in favor, but understood that the pros outweighed the cons by just a little bit last year when it came to becoming observer state status. And I'll explain that at Kiddush, we don't have enough time today. But, this year I was wildly opposed to it, and I'll explain why later. However, some entities were in favor of it, for some of the reasons I mentioned and others. A particular synagogue in Manhattan by the name of Vinay Jeshurun decided that they were so in favor of it that their leadership sent a letter to their entire congregation applauding the United Nations on this vote and saying how it's a watershed moment for humanity, even at the peril of Israel. This was such an interesting move that the New York Times decided to put it on the front page above the fold. The cover article, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, I, don't, I think it was Wednesday, don't quote me on the date. There's been a lot of back and forth since. Now, for those of you who don't know, B'nai Jeshurun is a hotbed of activity in Jewish life in Manhattan. I lived on the Upper West Side for 15 years plus. It was where we were members of a synagogue for a long time. My wife used to work there. Many tourists would go to B'nai Jeshurun because that was the original place of song and dance on Shabbat. 1,500 people, many of them single, would come and they would find us all senses and all types of engagement. They had so many people and services, they had to have it in two locations. The synagogue wasn't big enough, they had to rent out a church so they could have two services simultaneously. This is a successful synagogue. And this is a synagogue that's doing more on the front of social action than probably 50 other synagogues in New Jersey combined. They're doing good work. But as a result of sending out this letter, which then became viral because it was on the front page of the New York Times, there are many people out there, including some rabbis, who are calling on the rabbis of B'nai Jeshurun to revoke their statement. And furthermore, they're calling on a boycott of people not to visit that synagogue anymore. Don't go there to pray. Don't go there to be involved in social action. Don't go there to identify as a Jew. Because what they did in condemning Israel was absolutely reprehensible. That's the words of others, not mine. This divide is almost like the Browse-Gordis divide. Are you on the side of B'nai Jeshurun? Are you not on the side of B'nai Jeshurun? Are you with them? Or are you against them? 
what they did is acceptable and right and good and we should support them, or we say you can't step foot in the building. Has it become absolutely black and white? And is there any other place to go? Well, I was uh, reading the paper on Saturday afternoon and I was caught by a terrible story that had just developed. A Kansas City Chiefs player, football player, had taken a gun, shot his girlfriend, and went to the team facility at Arrowhead and painfully in front of his coach and general manager took his own life, Javon Belcher. It was a painful moment for football, for people who are lovers of humanity. No one wants to see any form of domestic violence, abuse, suicide. Painful moment for the Chiefs, for football. Painful moment for all of those who follow the sport. And of course, for the family itself. The Chiefs had debated along with NFL whether they were going to cancel the game, forfeit the game, what they were going to do, they decided to play. And on Sunday Night Football, one of my heroes, and I'll tell you, he's been a hero for mine for a long time. He first garnered my real support and he gave the eulogy for Mickey Mantle. And he fortified my unending love when he provided what IOC wouldn't give us, the International Olympic Committee, in a short moment of silence when he was announcing and introducing all the delegations of the Olympic Games on this, the 40th anniversary of Munich. And that is, of course, Bob Costas. I love Bob Costas. He's brilliant, he's articulate, he's funny, he's real, and he gets sports like no other. But Bob Costas, during halftime of the game, apparently made a public service announcement about weapons and guns, in his own views. What Bob Costas said was that in the history of his life, he's never known a professional athlete who has made his life safer or better through owning a gun. But he has too many examples, he said, of athletes who have owned a gun and taken promising careers and good possibilities and ruined them along with others. I think that took a lot of courage for him to say, personally. It had nothing to do with the football game that was happening that night. But as a result of him making this public announcement for a minute and ten seconds on the air, he has been asked, not by NBC, but by many who follow NBC, including some sponsors, for him to be censured, for him to have some form of punishment, including losing his job. From people who asked Bob Costas to step down or to be fired by NBC for making his statement about guns. Now, again, we see the same thing in a whole different atmosphere, a whole different arena that we saw with Gordas and Grouse when we see with B'nai Jeshurun and the UN vote. Does Costas have the right to say it? Or does he not have the right to say it? Should he only be talking about sports? Is that his only issue? Should he only be talking about the game of the week? Or does he have a license in which to speak about these things? Do Rabbi Grouse, do Rabbi Gordas have the right to talk about their views from the Bema of what should happen with Israel and with Operation Pillar of Defense? Do Nate Jeshurun and his leadership have a right to celebrate the UN vote or should it be condemned because it's inherently bad for Israel or not? Now, I have views on all of these matters in particular, and you've heard me speak about them. I'm not shy about them. I spoke on the holidays about my beliefs on gun control. I've spoken on numerous occasions about the United Nations vote, about our right to returns in Israel, about all of the borders and where they should be, and about a Zionist state. I don't think I can be quiet or communicative in any way when it comes to issues of support for Israel. 
that would be naive for anyone to think that. The question is, are we allowed to share views and hear views of those that we don't agree with? And can we embrace them, celebrate them, even if we're vehemently opposed to them? In practice, can I go to B'nai Jeshur in synagogue and dance on Shabbat, even though I am passionately opposed to what the rabbis believe about the United Nations vote? Can I go with Rabbi Browse or Rabbi Gordas and share a meal and share teaching and learning, which I have done with both, even though I might disagree with one over the other? Can I tune into NBC if my belief of the Second Amendment trumps, trumps my belief on gun control? Can I still watch Bob Costas and appreciate his analytics of game and of sports? My worry in life is that what Alan Dershowitz said to us, what Alan Dershowitz laid out in quoting Voltaire and in his debate with Keyes about being passionately opposed to something but fighting for someone's right to say it, is beginning to erode in our world. It's beginning to fall away to the point where we can't hear the other voice and appreciate it. Now in Judaism, that is antithetical to the way we are wired. If the Talmud only told us the opinion we follow, it would be a very short book. But the Talmud, and the Bible, and the Mishnah, and Midrash, and all of the codes of law tell us differing opinions. All of us have heard of Hillel, and all of us have heard of Shammai. And they differed on everything, especially how to light Hanukkah candles. And sometimes, a guy like Shammai had the right practical answer, but is proven wrong only because it doesn't have so much sense in its application. But does that mean that the Mishnah then redacts out the view of Shammai? Or is it more important to read first so that we hear other opinions, even when we don't follow them, if we disagree with them? This idea of isolation and particularism is often a misread in this week's Parsha, too. In Parsha Vayeshev, it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other children, and that's the part that everyone remembers. That he was the favorite child that Jacob didn't love his other kids. But the text doesn't say that at all. The text doesn't even hint at that. It says that he had a unique relationship with Jacob and Joseph. And it gives the reason why. One reason why is he bent to leave alone. He was born to him at an old age. The second reason why is because he was the first child to come of his favorite wife. He had four women that bore children for him. And this one was from his favorite. So those are factors. Rashi goes and continues and says another factor in the equation is how many similarities Joseph had to Jacob. And because of that, they had a special relationship. Not better than the other kids, not worse than the other kids, just special. I have two kids. They're both amazing and I love them with every ounce of my being. But there are some qualities in my daughter that I see it's like looking in the mirror. And some qualities in my son that are just like me. And I see other qualities in each of them that are just like my wife. And when I see those qualities, and when Dory sees those qualities in them, it creates a sense of connectivity, a sense of closeness, not more love, not something that trumps the other child, but a sense that allows us to latch on in a way that only we can connect one to the other. And it doesn't mean that in doing so that the other child is forgotten or not loved or doesn't have value or meaning. And it doesn't mean that in the case of Gordis versus Browse, and it doesn't mean in the case of Jeshurun and the UN vote, and it doesn't mean it 
Bob Costas has the courage to speak out about something that he passionately believes in. It doesn't mean that. It means that in our lives, excuse the pun, we need more than 50 shades of gray. What we need in our lives are many more shades to realize that we don't live in a linear world of right and wrong, of with us and not with us. That when it comes to support for Israel, or it comes to support for a congregation, or it comes to beliefs and guns, that there are detailed nuances and understandings that we should all be a little bit more ready to unpack and roll up our sleeves with, and not take only on face value. And the same is the case in understanding the relationship between Jacob and Joseph. For if we do that, if we just dismiss it, and become a world where it's with us or not with us, right versus wrong, black or white, then we miss everything that America stood for, and we miss everything that Judaism stands for. That's what Hillel and Shammai's voices lend in hearing them both. And that's what Dershowitz meant when he said, I'll fight for my dying day for your right to say them. I might not agree with parts of Rabbi Browse or parts of Rabbi Gordis. I might celebrate the courage of the rabbis of the Jeshurun to disagree passionately with how they express that courage. And I might applaud Bob Costas for speaking out about something that bothers me personally, but also question the form in which he did it. But it doesn't mean that I stop watching NFL or Bob Costas. It doesn't mean I stop dancing at B'nai Jeshurun. It doesn't stop my interactions and learning from my teachers and rabbis, Rabbi Gordas and Rabbi Grouse. This be a lesson to us too. Jacob loved Joseph. He loved his other 12 children too. Let it be a lesson to all of us that worlds like Judaism and worlds like the America in which we live in work better in shades of gray. And if we can appreciate those shades of gray and we can hear the other and fight for our dying day, everyone's right to be heard. And that is the beauty of our tradition. Shabbat Shalom.